The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. That's where we are in Revelation chapter 9. So let's go ahead and go ahead and do that. Before I do, just a reminder from 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says, All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. So that includes the book of Revelation. That's why it is so important to study the, the book of Revelation, its entire uh, context, contents from chapter 1 to 22. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So it's profitable to study Revelation. That's why we're doing it. It is Scripture. It's God-breathed. It's the mind of God. It's the future. It is profitable. It is profitable for specific things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for all Christians, in order that the man, woman, child of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do you want to be a mature Christian? Do you want to be totally, thoroughly complete in Christ? Then an absolute essential and prerequisite to that is to know all of God's Word, which includes 22 chapters, a huge chunk, one of the largest books in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. It is the very Word of God. What a great privilege we have to look at this amazing, fantastic, I would say exciting and thrilling, exhilarating book. Uh, I've been very encouraged as I've been having the privilege to study through it every single week. Uh, reading the chapters over and over and over again. Um, it's amazing. Uh, God is in control. And this is how it all ends. This is where it's all leading up to. And this is uh, very encouraging to me as a Christian to know where we are headed. I don't know about you, but I hate not know where I'm going or headed in just about every situation in life. I want to know where I'm going, uh, where the ultimate destination is. And God comforts His people by letting them know how it all ends, the most important thing in the world, and that is history and life itself. That's one of the glories and blessings that Christians can take away from the book of Revelation. Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 9, and before we lay the foundation there, Revelation 9 really lands us in the, right in the middle of that seven-year future tribulation. But to set the stage as usual, and I will keep doing this till I hammer it into your brain, so you have this memorized and you know Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 19, how the book is divinely outlined by God, where Jesus told John the Apostle in Revelation 1, 19, Write, John, therefore, the things which you've just seen, me, the glorified Christ, past. And also, John, write the things that which are going on in the church age and the seven churches in Asia Minor as you see them. And he did that in chapter 2 and 3. And then after you write what's going down in the present, John, write about the future. And that is the bulk of what he's writing. So the bulk of Revelation is prophetic. That's why it's called a prophecy in Revelation 1.3, and it's called a prophecy in Revelation 22.18. It is a prophetic book, primarily about the future. God knows the future. He is the author of the future. And so in chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus tells John, you're going to, you need to write down the things which shall take place after these things. That is a technical phrase, after these things. And that's why in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, John says two times in verse 1, after these things I looked and behold, and thus begins his future prophetic revelation of how the world is going to end. Chapters 4 all the way to 22 are all future. But there's even a prophetic element given in chapter 3, verse 10 that I need to remind you of. As Jesus is talking to the church at Philadelphia 2,000 years ago. A biblical church, a faithful church, not a perfect church because there's no such thing and we all know that, right? But there are healthy churches there are obedient churches. And that's what Philadelphia was. A healthy church, an obedient church. And God blessed them for being obedient. And His promise was in verse 10, because you have kept the word of My perseverance, I, the Lord Jesus, also will keep you from the hour of testing. I'm going to keep you from that time period of trial that is yet future. You won't even be around when it happens. Well, which hour are you talking about, Jesus? Well, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world. So it is a universal event. And it is also future. That hour which is about to come upon the entire world to test, to try, to expose, to punish earth dwellers. That's the tribulation. By God's design, the seven-year tribulation is a time to test, to punish, to expose, to reveal who the rebels are during that time in the future. And in conjunction with that, to expose, to reveal faithful believers and bless them accordingly. So God has a purpose for this future seven-year tribulation. Uh, that's one of the purposes. But it also is fulfillment of literally dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds 
of Old Testament prophecies that this day of the Lord, this day of wrath would come. So it's fulfilling Old Testament Scripture. So let's go to that fulfillment in Revelation chapter 9. Last week, if you weren't here, uh, we saw that Jesus has right over the earth, the universe, history. He is the sovereign. He is the King of kings. And as such, He was able to take that scroll of future history from God the Father and it had seven seals on it. And Jesus began to peel away the seals one at a time. And when He peeled that seventh seal, which was uh, chapter 8, verse 1, out of the seven seals are seven trumpets. Seven trumpet judgments. And so that's what we're looking at right now are these seven trumpet judgments, all of which are future judgments from God against the earth. And so last week in Revelation chapter 8, we went over the first four trumpet judgments. And they were very similar. They had an impact on one-third of the earth. Uh, another similarity they had is it was judgment against uh, nature, the world, uh, the land, the earth, the waters, the sea. It wasn't so much directed against human beings uh, in those first four judgments. And it was a third of the earth was being affected. Um, and today we're looking at the next two trumpet judgments. After those first four, now we're looking at the next uh, trumpet number five and trumpet number six. And those are distinct, trumpet five and trumpet six, because they are direct assaults against humanity on earth, unlike the first four. And also they are demonic in orientation. And we're going to see that. Demonic as in God is using demons for His purpose. God uses demons for His purpose. It's amazing. God uses Satan for His purpose. God is in control of all things. So we're going to look at the two trumpet judgments, trumpet number five and trumpet number six. That is the content of chapter nine. So let's go ahead and look at it. Actually, uh, chapter nine is connected to uh, chapter eight. It's a running narrative. And in chapter eight, verse 13, it concluded with this. John saw these uh, first four trumpet judgments and he's like, wow. And I looked and behold, all of a sudden an eagle flying or a vulture flying in mid-heaven, pronouncing, proclaiming with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to earth dwellers. More is coming. That's what that means. Woe to you earth, earth dwellers in the book of Revelation are these future rebels of God who live during the tribulation, who never relent, who never repent, who never come to Christ. They just become more and more hardened, more and more callous. They hate God. They follow Satan. They even persecute and kill believers during the tribulation, these earth dwellers. And so God pronounces a triple woe against these earth dwellers. Okay, here's a warning. Woe is a warning. Warning. Heed. Pay attention. Wake up. So before he goes on to the next two trumpet blasts, five and six, he gives them warning. He gives them time to let them know something devastating is coming. Woe, woe, woe to earth dwellers because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And so we're going to see the next two trumpet blasts in chapter 9. Let's go ahead and look at those trumpet blasts. Uh, the first is verses 1 through 12. That's trumpet number 5. So that's a lot of content of what happens with trumpet blast number 5. We'll look at the details of that. Before we do, I was thinking... If you went on Netflix and you were looking for the book of Revelation as a movie, what genre or category would you select? You know, they got like 12 of them. It, it definitely wouldn't be romance. Uh, probably not kids and family. Thrillers, yes. Drama, absolutely. Documentary, absolutely. Fiction, no. That's the difference. Revelation is not fiction. It's actually, everything about it is true and real. That's why it is so dangerous and undermining to interpret Revelation from an allegorical or symbolic point of view solely. Because it's not allegorical at all. That was not God's intent. If you're saying it's allegorical, that means it's fiction. It is not real. Uh, Revelation is true future history. All these events are going to happen. Most of them happened and transpired historically anyway because John actually saw all this stuff. He saw it in a vision, in a prophetic trance. And much of that prophetic stuff he already saw is a prediction of what's actually going to happen in the future. And God communicated it through sign language, he said in chapter 1, in a way that only he can. So it's not fiction if you were trying to select what genre or category. Thriller, yes. I'd say documentary. I would say uh, based on real events. Or how about biography? Because you've got 
the most extensive biography of Satan in Revelation chapter 12. You've got a biography of the Antichrist. You've got a biography of all these people that are alive during that time. So these are real events. Just a very important reminder to keep that in the forefront of our thinking as we look to this. Because especially in chapter 9, you're reading this stuff, it's like, wow, this is weird. I mean, what does this mean? So let's try to figure that out. Uh, let's look at chump, trumpet number 5, which is actually the first of these three woes that were just given, these warnings. Uh, also, trumpet number 5 and woe number 1 are actually entailed in seal number 7 and compose the seven bowls. Try not to confuse you too much, but that's just the way it is. And on the fifth trumpet, just to summarize it, I put uh, stinging demonic scorpions. Stinging demonic scorpions. Verses 1 through 12. And I broke it down into their origin. What or who are these scorpions? What is their mission? And what is their description? So let's go ahead and look at their origin. Are these real locusts? Or something beyond real locusts? And I would say definitely and clearly from Scripture, they're not real locusts. So that's... Uh, So let's look at the origin of these locusts. And I just want to read through verses 1 through 3. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star from heaven which had already fallen to the earth. And the key of the abyss, or the key of the bottomless pit, was given to this angel. And the angel opened the bottomless pit, or the abyss, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. And power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. So first I want to look at these the main character here, and that is these scorpions. And I mean locusts. And locusts they they travel in swarms, and that's the implication here. There are so many locusts that and that this there are so many together, it just makes this huge, massive, thick, black cloud that is so thick and they are they are so multitudinous that they literally darken the sun. And we know that even real locust plagues can do that to agree today when they're big enough. But are these real locusts? I would say clearly from the text, they're not. Um, and he gives us some clues there. And that is by looking at their origin. So it, it says, John says he saw a, an angel, I would say a star fallen from heaven, which is probably an angel, or it's, the text says that. And even in the book of Job, angels are called stars. I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. There is controversy whether is this a, a good angel or a fallen angel. Uh, there's good arguments on each side, but I would say looking at uh, Revelation chapter 20, I kind of lean towards the fact that this is a, a God-ordained good angel for a specific task that he's commissioned to do because similar language is given in Revelation 20. Um, and the word for fallen is very specific. It's a perfect tense in the Greek tense, blah, blah, blah. You don't need to know about that. But uh, here's this star that used to be residing in heaven. And the point is now he's been commissioned to do a duty on earth. That's what it means. He's going to do something to the earth. That's his area of domain. And God is the one giving him instructions. It says in verse 1 that a key was given uh, to this star, this angel, to the bottomless pit. The NIV says the abyss with a capital A. That is Excellent, because that's exactly what the Greek text says. It's the abyss. And everybody picks on the NIV all the time. Hey, they got it right once right here. Every other English translation says the bottomless pit. The literal word is the abyss. Well, what is the abyss? This angel is given probably a key from God, which means authority to open up the abyss. And so I want, with that, I want you to look at Luke chapter 8, because this gives us a hint of what the abyss is. The abyss, something definite, a definite place, a real place. I'd say a spiritual and invisible place to us, but nevertheless, it is real. It is literal. It is ongoing. There are people who reside there right now, people as in fallen demons. Because in Luke chapter 8, verse 26, while Jesus is doing His ministry there, He was in transit, and it says in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8, Jesus and His disciples sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, And when Jesus had come out onto the land, there was a certain man from the city there who met Jesus who was possessed with demons. He wasn't just demon-possessed. He had a multiplicity of demons living inside of him. Very dangerous situation. And this man who was demon-possessed had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but he was living in tombs among dead people, which was unclean. Verse 28, And seeing Jesus... He cried out. Probably these screeching demonic voices is what cried out of this human body. 
And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before Jesus and said in a loud voice, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. That was the demon talking. Or the demons, plural. Angry, furious at the holiness of Jesus. Verse 29, Jesus had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized the man many times. And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. Very powerful. These demons made this man supernaturally powerful, the incredible Hulk. Verse 30, he could break chains. And Jesus asked him, What is your name, demon? The demons must obey Jesus. And they do. And he said, Legion. My name is Legion. What does that mean? Legion means many. Lots. Lots and lots. Maybe countless. For many demons had entered in him. Verse 31, and they. Notice it goes to plural. They. used to be he, he, he. Now it's they. That's the demons. And the demons inside this man were entreating, begging, pleading with Jesus, who had all authority, not to command them to depart into the abyss. There it is, exact same word. What is that? That's demon prison. We do not want to go into demon prison. We know what it's like. We've heard about it. It's a place where they are confined and bound and have limits. The abyss. It's not eternal hell. It's not Hades. It's a very specific place where demons are confined by God for His purposes. And the other time the word abyss is used is mostly in the book of Revelation. And in every single context, it has to do with demons who are confined for a specific time, specific purpose by God to do His bidding. But it is an evil, wicked place of residence. They don't want to go there. So going back to Revelation chapter 9, now we know what the abyss is. This angel was given the key to the abyss. Authority from God to open the abyss. And verse 2, and he opened the abyss. And smoke, that smoke that's coming up is probably these locusts in swarms and swarms and swarms of them. This is going to happen in the future. This is going to happen after the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. We know that from the chronology of Revelation. A very specific event. So the smoke is probably these locust-like creatures. Countless, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them. So power is given to these locust-like creatures. I would say they're demonic locusts. Demon locusts. Part of the unique power given to these locusts is it says they have power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Uh, I put a picture there of a scorpion. They're nasty looking things. Why would you ever want a scorpion as a pet in your house? I don't know, but some people do. I know people that do, but anyway. Uh, the danger of a scorpion is his tail because he has a stinger, which many times is venomous. So the power that is given to these demonic locust-like creatures is, apparently is this uh, unimaginable ability to sting and inflict unbelievable, painful harm. That's what these demons are empowered to do. And they're all empowered by God with this, this ability. So that is their origin. So these are not talking about regular old locusts. These are uh, demonic creatures that come out. They are unleashed from the abyss. The satanic pit. The demonic pit. Four times the NASB calls it the pit, the pit, the pit. We have a you know, modern vernacular. Boy, he's, his thoughts are out of the pit. That teaching's out of the pit. His language is out of the pit. That comes from probably right here, the pit. It's appropriate. Satanic, it is demonic, it is evil, inherently. Well, what else about these demonic locusts? Well, what are they called to do? Their mission, that's point B, that's 4 and 6. 4 through 6, and they were told... See, they're giving marching orders. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth. That's why... Okay, there it is. They're, these are not real, regular old locusts. They don't eat grass. They are demonic. They are demon-like creatures. We know from the Scriptures, from Colossians, from Ephesians, and every other passage, or several other passages in the New Testament, that there are hierarchies, kinds of angels. Classes of angels and classes of demons. There's archangels and many other kinds of angels and demons. And so, this is probably a class of a kind of a fallen angel with given very specific 
tasks to do and also very specific features by which they're described. And so we see their mission here, verse 4 through 6. And they were told, these, these demonic locusts were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only, here it is, the men or the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That was their mission. So these demons are let loose for a very specific point in history. And they're let loose, commissioned by God to go and torment human beings on planet earth with this vicious, terrible, painful sting that they're going to be given. But it wasn't everybody who was going to get stung by them because it says in the middle of verse 4, um, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Well, who are those? We saw that in chapter 7, that before God went on with the seventh seal and all of the trumpet judgments, He wanted to protect very specifically, like hermetically seal and protect some of His faithful. And He chose 144,000 Jewish believers in the future that He's going to protect and seal and safeguard them from especially these judgments of the trumpets. So the 144,000 Jews at least, they are not going to be uh, afflicted or subject to these demons who are going to attack all the people on earth. And that is in keeping with the 10 Old Testament plagues in Egypt where God sent these 10 devastating plagues on Egypt, but He kept protecting that little land of Goshen where all the Israelites and Jews were. He protected His people. And all these frogs were hopping all over the place, yet not one frog would hop into the house of an Israelite. Amazing! God controlled them. God controls these in the future as well. So they're on a leash by God's command. So they won't uh, hurt believers designated by God who are sealed with His protection during the future tribulation. Verse 5, what else is their mission? They go to sting. Uh, they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment. So again, there, there's another uh, inhibition or limit they have. They're not allowed to kill anybody. They're only allowed to torment, which might be worse than killing. There are times where people get to a point of affliction or pain where they'd rather have their life lost than suffer in grueling pain. So that's why this is so hideous and horrible. Because they're given probably the worst pain possible and imaginable, but they're not going to die when they are inflicted. In verse 5, they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. So torment, a very graphic word. So these demons are going to torment human beings for five months. And by the way, there's no reason not to take five months literally. God knows time. He knows calendar. He invented it. This is the terminology He's using. It is very specific. Five months means five months. So it's a five-month period where these demons are going around like locusts with stingers like a poisonous scorpion tormenting anybody on earth during that time that is not sealed by God. And they're going to be tormented and tormented and tormented with this excruciating pain. Verse 5, and their, torment, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Very painful. In verse 5, that word like is absolutely key. It's a literal Greek word in, uh, in the Greek text and it's used about nine or ten times in the next five or six verses. And what it means is he's making a description. It is like, it is like, it is like. So in other words, he's speaking metaphorically. These are similes. He's making comparisons. So everything in here is not to be taken Literally in a wooden sense. But it is literal in terms of there are going to be these real demon creatures that are really going to do these devastating things. But the description, he's having a hard time with his vocabulary to describe what he's seeing in this amazing, prophetic, supernatural vision from God. It's a challenge. It is a struggle. So he keeps, it was like this. And it was, it was kind of like this. And we even struggle with that at times as we're trying to explain things. So he keeps, he's going to, you're going to see this. It was like this. It was like this. It was like this. So it was, it was like the torment of a scorpion that stings a man. But it wasn't that they weren't scorpions, literally. But they're going to be like scorpions. That's what he's saying. But this is really going to happen. The, and the rest of their mission, verse 6, and in those days. and in the, this, that, that is a technical prophetic phrase that John is using to speak about the future. That's what the prophets of old would do. And in those days. And in those days. So we know John is a prophet. This is yet future. This isn't a description of everything that's been going on over and over and over again throughout church history like some commentators want us to believe. This is a future, specific, definitive event, unparalleled, unprecedented. In those days, it is going to be so bad that people will seek death. That's how bad it is. They're going to seek to die, to be relieved of the pain. But they will not find death. You know, that is a judgment from God. Death is one of the consequences from God and the ability that they don't get to die in this situation is a judgment from God. I'm not going to let you get out so easy. This is God. This is the holy God of wrath. 
And God isn't going to let them die. They're going to seek. They're going to be like fugitives seeking death, literally is what it says. They won't find it. And they will long to die and death will flee. Literally, death will be a fugitive from them. Death will hide from them, run from them, escape from them. They won't be able to kill themselves. It's like earlier we saw at the end of the chapter where they're, they're literally crawling under the rocks and asking the rocks to fall on them and to kill them. And it's not going to happen. This is an act of God's judgment. So the pain is going to be horrific. But that's their mission, these demonic uh, locusts. And then he goes on to give a, a, a graphic description of what they look like. And this is actually kind of interesting and fun and gruesome at the same time. This is what they're going to look like. This is how we know for sure that these are not real locusts because in verse 7 he says, and here is their appearance. This is what they look like. They don't look like the harmless grasshopper that John the Baptist used to eat that I put in your bulletin. Not even close. little honey, roasted, delicious. And the appearance of these demonic locusts was like, there it is, like, again he says it nine times. They were like horses. They weren't horses, but they're like horses. The implication, uh, he's describing them to horses that are prepared for battle that come in hordes with that intimidating, tumultuous beat of their hoofs in unison and in, in mobs hundreds at a time. They are warlike. This, is, this starts to affect their sound, let alone their appearance. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Man, they are serious. They are prepared for battle. They have a mission. They know what they're doing. They are single. They are intent. They're like good soldiers. They just simply obey. They are not distracted. So their appearance was, was like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads, as it were, were crowns or stephanos. Where we get the word Stephen? There's diadems and stephanos, two different kinds of crowns. The stephanos is the crown of victory. They, they're going to be victorious in their mission. That's what this means. They are going to succeed in the mission which God has given them to do here, even though they're evil and demonic. And they wear crowns. And that word stephanos was the exact same word that was used for the Roman legionnaire that was like a gold helmet in his day, in full garb. His Stephanos, the victorious Roman soldier, prepared and ready for battle, riding on his horse, riding on his chariot. So the description is graphic, and as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. That's why these are not real locusts. These are demon-like creatures. And this whole idea, like in Revelation chapter 4, with the, the face of a man speaks of intelligence. These are intelligent beings. And we know that angels are intelligent beings. They are highly intelligent Angels right now are more highly intelligent than man's, yea, even more intelligent than dolphins, I would say. So they're intelligent beings. They can think. They have a will. They can follow directions. Verse 8, and they had hair like the hair of women. That is not an insult to all you ladies, by the way. Oh, that's just, again, this graphic description that these are not regular locusts. These are demon-like creatures that John has never seen before in his life reserved for this time period in history. And really that idea of this, this long hair on a locust-like demon creature that's a male with a human face with iron teeth just adds to the gruesome detail of this grotesque creature. Hair like the hair of women. And their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They, that speaks of veracity, how dangerous they are. They don't kill anybody here because they're limited, but they've got teeth that could do it. It goes on the description, verse 9, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. They're ready for war. In other words, they're going to be protected. There's nothing these humans can do to retaliate. I don't care if you call Ghostbusters. Ain't going to work. They have breastplates to protect themselves for their mission and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. That means they are just countless. And when you've got a locust uh, plague coming, they say that you can hear the, the noise from miles away if it's big enough. That's intimidating. Like chariots coming after you. Storming in. Literally making the earth shudder on their way. Countless. Verse 10. And they have tails like scorpions. See, like like scorpion, and stingers. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. So you'd think that, you know, some 144,000 believers plus are going to be protected from this while on earth. And then so you've got billions of people on earth at the time who are going to be, everybody's going to be afflicted and tormented by this. And it is going to be the most painful, horrendous thing in the world. And you would think that they would just repent and say, oh, this must be God. Oh, that revelation book is true. Oh, I believe. Well, we'll see if they respond like that. You would think that they would. They'd cry, uncle, uncle. Do they? Verse 11. 
Here's another reason we know these aren't real locusts, because the book of Proverbs even tells us this, and we know this is true today. If you're an insectologist or whatever they're called, thank you. Uh, locusts don't have a leader. Well, these locusts, these demonic they do. They have a definitive leader, and he has a name, this leader. Uh, that's verse 10, or verse 11. They have as king over them. There's this demonic king. So I said there are different hierarchies of angels. There's Michael the archangel, and then there's these underlords of Satan himself who are demons and have charge over their demons. This is the real world. This is the real spiritual world. And so there's this demonic ruler, very powerful demon, and they have as king over them the angel of the abyss, the angel of the bottomless pit. That is his job. That's his area of domain. That is his responsibility. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and his name in Greek is Apollyon, which means destroyer. He is the destroying demon. That's who he is, and that's their leader. They follow his command, they obey, and they will. And verse 12 says, The first woe is past. That is trumpet number five. Take warning. Heed the call of God and his wrath to come, people. Behold, two more woes are still coming after these things. This is sequential. This is chronological. That's how Revelation goes. After these things. So that's trumpet number five. Let's look at trumpet number six. Also just as weird and grotesque and graphic. And the sixth angel sounded his trumpet. Oh, by the way, uh, you probably already got it, but uh, their mission was to torment and their description was, I just put gruesome. Uh, Now let's go on to the sixth trumpet. And on the sixth trumpet, I just put... Killing demonic horses. Again, you got another, I'd say, brand or breed of demons that are unleashed by God in His perfect time. And there's their number that's given and their mission. So let's go ahead and look at that. First, their number, and that's verses 13 to 16. Uh, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. By the way, that golden altar, this is that altar up in heaven where prayers of the saints are going that started with the prayers of the martyrs in the tribulation in Revelation 6, verse 10 where they prayed out, God, avenge us. And God said, I will, but wait. And then we saw in chapter 8 where he takes the golden center, an angel does, and throws it to the earth. And that's where God answers their prayer and He begins to pummel the earth. And the, the answer to the prayers of the saints were praying for vengeance upon earth dwellers upon the earth. So here is another answer to the cry, the imprecatory prayers of the saints asking for the vengeance of God on His enemies. And God is going to wield that with fury and a vengeance. And He does. And that's trumpet number six. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God up in heaven. And there was a voice saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound to the great river Euphrates. So there are these four angels, apparently, that are bound. And by the way, in Scripture, the only kinds of angels that are bound that we know of are fallen angels. So these are probably fallen demons. And it says they are bound or incarcerated or held in check at the Euphrates River. By the way, every time the word Euphrates River is used in Scripture, it always means the Euphrates River. It's amazing how many commentators want to spiritualize it. Well, here I think the Euphrates means... And they pull something out of the air. No, it's used dozens and dozens and dozens of times in Scripture already, and it's always the Euphrates River, and it still exists today, and it's one of the largest rivers in the world, almost 2,000 miles long. It's been there since the beginning. It was there in Genesis 2. It's there in Revelation 16. It ain't going nowhere. This is the Euphrates River. So even, again, this is comforting. The Bible is accurate even in its geography and history. The Euphrates River, we know where it is. There's a landmark. This isn't willy-nilly out of the air, somebody making stuff up. And apparently there are angels, demons, who are assigned by God over this area of the Euphrates River for a specific task in the future. Don't ask me who these demons are because I have no idea because the text doesn't tell us. It says the angels, they are specific angels, and they're the ones that were arrested at some point apparently and handcuffed there. Here, you guys wait here at the Euphrates River in those chains and I'll be back in a few thousand years. Apparently that's what maybe Michael the archangel said one day. But here they are. And there's a command from God and it says release these four angels who are bound at the Euphrates River. So in the future, during the tribulation, after the midpoint of the tribulation, during the sixth trumpet, God is going to release these four very dangerous, very powerful demons to do their dirty deeds. And here's what they do. Verse 15. The four angels that were bound, the four demons that were bound at the Euphrates River who had been, get this, had been prepared. God prepared them. Again, that is comforting to me. Did you know God is in charge of the angels? God is in charge of the demons? 
God is in charge of everything. Everything. Bows to His purpose. And God even prepared these demons for their purpose. These demons have been prepared, get this, for the hour and the day and the month and the year. God is in charge of time. He is in charge of history. Someone well said, history is His story, isn't it? That's our God. Our personal God. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a meaning. Everything is under His sovereign control. There is no happenstance. There is no coincidence. There is no chance. There is no luck. Good luck. There is no luck. God is sovereign. He's in charge. So you can see the character of God in all this. Because He's in charge of everything. And so they were prepared for this very time in the future and then they're going to be released. So that they, and here's what they're going to do. So that they might kill a third of humankind. That's their mission. So that they might kill a third of humankind. Wow. A third of humankind in the future could be anywhere from... Like right now, we're, what are we teetering on 7 billion people? Maybe this is like 8 billion people. And uh, 2 billion have already been killed in an earlier plague. So you're looking at about 6 billion people. A third of 6 billion... 2 billion people being killed and slaughtered instantly from this plague. That is mind-boggling. And in verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared, uh, they are released. And they're going to kill mankind. They're going to do it through somebody else. Verse 16, and the number of the armies of the horsemen. So out of the blue, out of nowhere, it talks about these armies who have horses. Well, where are they coming from? Well, it doesn't even really go into saying where they're coming from. It's by implication. These four demonic angels apparently have access and control and oversight of many, 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 many demonic armies. And they're going to release these demonic armies for God's purpose. Because that's what verse 16... These are not real human beings. This is not a real literal army. This is not the army over in China, as we've been told many times. These are demons. This is the demon world. The number of the armies of these demonic horsemen was 200 million. 200 million. That's a huge army. And I believe these are literal demon-like creatures that are going to be charged by God in the future to kill a third of humankind, up to 2 billion people in the future during the tribulation. 200 million, that's a big number. How do you know it's 200 million? Well, because verse 16 says it was 200 million. Well, how could John possibly sit there in a vision and count 200 million? Well, he didn't have to because the end of verse 16 says, John says, I heard the number of them. You know what that means? God told me there were 200 million. God told me. It's the only way he could know it. He's a prophet. God doesn't lie. By the way, did you know God can count very high? Did you know the greatest mathematical mind in the world? No, in the universe, I take that back, is God Himself. He can count to 200 million. He can count to a billion. He can count to a trillion. I don't know what comes after that, but God does. And this is a no-brainer for Him. Well, by the way, John, uh, you can't count them. There's 200 million. Because again, all these commentators want to say, well, 200 million means, and it's symbolic for, and I'm like, no, it's not. It's 200 million. It says, it says God told him it was 200 million. John knows how to say big numbers that he can't count because he did it earlier. Chapter 7, verse 9, he said, there were so many angels that no one could count them. Chapter 7, verse 9. Or in chapter 5, verse 11, there were so many angels, there were myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, countless. And here he says, 200 million, because God told me so. Well, why do you need 200 million demons to inflict humanity. Well, if you have 6 billion people, you need a lot of demons, don't you? If you have 200 million demons, then you've got to do it quickly, and they're all responsible for about 300 individuals, then you need about 200 million to pull it off, to torment the whole planet Earth, 6 billion people, and then to kill one-third of them. That's a lot of work for one demon to be responsible for 300 human beings and give them individual attention, every single one. So I'd say God knows what He's doing. You need 200 million demons to pull this off. So I would say it's literal. No reason not to take it literal. 200 million. Let's look at verses 17 to 19, uh, further details on their mission of these horse demons. Verse 17 says, And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. And again, he's going to start using these words like. Verse 17, he says, They were like this. And then verse 19, They were like this. They were like lions. They were like serpents. Again, uh, creating a simile. giving us, Trying to give us a visual picture as he was struggling with the terminology to describe these demonic creatures he'd never seen before in his life. 
and couldn't imagine anything like them. 17 and 19, and this is what I saw of my vision of the horses in heaven. By the way, the emphasis here is not on the soldiers on the back of the horses. The emphasis in all this is on the horses themselves. I believe the demons are horse-like creatures. It's just incidental that there's somebody on top, some jockey that nobody really cares about, right? It's the horse. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on... See, those. Who cares who they are? The riders. And and even the term the riders isn't even in the Greek text. It's the horses had breastplates. The horses had breastplates. And the color of fire was of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. They don't have lion's heads, but they're like a lion, which means just ferocious. Fierce, and out of their mouths of the horses proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. These are not real horses. These are not human beings. These are demonic creatures that breathe fire, literal fire. It doesn't say like fire, like he does in other descriptions. Verse 18, and a third of mankind was killed. A third of the people, not just men, not just males, a third of humanity is going to be killed and slaughtered. Two billion people plus by these three plagues. What three plagues? By the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which comes out of the mouth of these demonic horses. Verse 19, For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. And they got these weird tails. Verse 19, For their tails are like serpents. They're not serpents, but they're like serpents. What are serpents? Uh, serpents are snakes. They are deadly. They are the enemy of God. They are the cursed creature on planet earth. Uh, they're tricky. They're slithery. They're smooth. They're everything about them. And that's what their tails are like on these demons. So these demons are dangerous on both ends. And their tails are like serpents. And they have heads. So they have heads on their tails. And even with the heads of their tails, they do harm and inflict harm and probably death. And they're going to kill a third of humanity. This is just unbelievable. Like I said earlier, how are people going to respond when two billion people die on planet Earth in a very short period of time? Hopefully there's just going to be this mass revival and softening of heart and repentance and acknowledging their sin and recognizing the Creator. God, forgive us! Well, that isn't what happens, at least not here. It's sad. And that's point number three. The reaction to all of this isn't wholesale repentance or revival. It's hardened hearts. That's the sad reality of sin, isn't it? A hardened heart. Verse 20, and the rest of mankind, the rest of humanity, those who were not killed. So the remaining, say, 4 billion people. They, this, here's the, one of the saddest phrases in the entire Bible. And the rest of humanity who were not killed by these plagues from God did not repent. Isn't that sad? They didn't repent. They didn't repent of their works of their hands, which were evil, so as not to worship demons. So they were demon worshipers. Isn't that ironic? The demons are killing them. The demons are inflicting the harm and they're still demon worshipers. Worshipping demons, worshipping idols, worshipping their gold, their money, their silver, their brass, their materials, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And the sad part is, and that's why chapter 10 has to keep on going all the way to chapter 19. They don't repent. They don't relent. They don't let up. They don't stop. They don't bow the knee. And, And sin is like that. Sin is hardening. Sin is devastating. Sin is dangerous. This is a great reminder for us as Christians. It's not just unbelievers who get hardened hearts. Did you know that Christians can get hardened hearts? Christians get hardened hearts. We need to take heed. As a matter of fact, there's a command in Scripture. Do not harden your heart. You know that command was made to a Christian congregation? Just a couple of quick reminders here because we need to hear this. When I say that Christians can harden their hearts, it's all over the book of James. James is writing to believers spread abroad. He's talking to Christians. And listen to how he talks to them. Just listen. Chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves? You are being partial in your congregation. That's a hardened heart. You're showing favoritism. He's rebuking them. These are believers. Well, give us some love, Pastor James. No, you need to hear the truth. You've hardened your hearts. You've been partial. And you have become judgmental with evil motives. He goes on. Chapter 3. Talking about their mouth, using it the wrong way. Then verse 14, he rebukes the congregation again, but you have become Bitter with jealousy. You've become bitter with jealousy. You're jealous of one another. You've become bitter towards other believers. 
That's a Christian not guarding their heart, isn't it? Examine your own heart right now. I have to examine my own. Am I susceptible to this? Is this going on in my life? Am I becoming bitter? Am I jealous about anything among other believers? This is a congregation of believers. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy. You have selfish ambition in your heart. Stop being arrogant. Stop lying against the truth. What are these quarrels among you? Chapter 4. Verse 2. You lust. You hate. Wow. Stop fighting. The end of verse 2. And then here's the culmination of it all. Talking to Christians. Verse 8. Chapter 4, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That, that is a warning from a good, faithful pastor saying, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't have a hardened heart and become bitter. And every Christian is susceptible to that, to getting a hardened heart, to becoming slowly bitter. That is the work of Satan. Did you know that? That's one of the things he wants to do. That's one of the things he specifically does, is try to slowly, a nuance at a time, incrementally, Harden the heart and the conscience of believers. Very dangerous. So we need to guard against this as, as Christians. And so here's a, just a practical thing I wanted to remind all of us against. We need to be aware of getting a hardened heart and we need to guard against it. How do you guard against a hardened heart? Well, it's protecting your conscience. Really, it all has to do with your mind and your conscience and how you think, your thought life. So just three things about preventing, having a preventative method of not having a hardened heart as a believer. Number one is to protect your conscience at all costs. Protect your conscience at all costs. Martin Luther said that. One of the greatest things you could ever do that is horrible is to sin against your conscience, to violate your conscience. So that would be point number one. Protect your conscience at all costs. What you sub- subject it to in terms of what you see, what you hear, the music you listen to, what you think, what's out in the world. Protect your conscience. Very important. Number two, inform your conscience. Some of us have wrong data in the brain. And you've misinformed your conscience. And so you think something that's wrong is right. Or something that is right is wrong. And that's why as, even as Christians we have to inform, protect the conscience from worldly influence, but also inform your conscience with biblical truth. We have just got to keep leeching our brain with biblical truth. Taking in the Word. Taking in the washing of the water of the Word of truth helps inform our conscience. So you've got to inform it with biblical truth continually and forever. When's the last time you took in a good dose of the Word of God? The Bible. Either you read it, you memorized it, you listened to it on CD, whatever. You've got to keep taking in the Word of God. It's our greatest defense. And then uh, finally, number three, protect your conscience, inform your conscience, and then cleanse your conscience. Cleanse your conscience uh, with the, the Word of God, but primarily through prayer. Going to God, God, forgive me of my hardened heart. Forgive me of my callous conscience. I'm slipping away here. Forgive me of the bitterness of my soul. Forgive me of the little compromises in my life that I've let run out of control and spiral out of control. Confessing to God, that's the, the, the quickest, most powerful thing you can do to cleanse your conscience and even for God to soften your heart. As you ask God, God, I've got a hardened heart. You need to, harden, you need to soften it for me, God. Soften my heart with your spirit and with truth. Cleanse my conscience. I confess my sin to you. So if you, if you take care of that conscience, protecting your conscience, informing your conscience, and cleansing your conscience, that will help you, help prevent you from having a hardened heart. And also, if you have a hardened heart, it will help soften your heart. Very practical. And a lot of this has to do with keeping short accounts among the brothers, being a forgiving person in an ongoing manner. That's why Scripture says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, because the more you do that, the more and more hardened you will become. Don't hold on to grudges. On and on it goes. Great reminder. So that as Christians, you know, we're not gonna, we, we can't be like these unbelievers who when they see the wrath of God and when they see all these divine gracious warnings, we don't stiffen our fist up to God. We don't stiffen our neck. We don't harden our heart. We don't get prideful and say, not me. We bow the knee. We submit to God. We admit our fault. We confess our sin. We give Him the glory. We thank Jesus Christ for dying for our sin. We thank the Holy Spirit for living inside of us as our advocate to continually soften us and lead us. The triune God ministering to us, protecting us from a hardened heart. What a gracious, caring God we have that that He would do that for us as believers. I want to close with Isaiah 46. If you have your Bible, you can follow along as I read. Because as I was going through this passage, especially that verse that jumped out at me in Revelation 9, where it's where God prepared those demons 
for the hour and the day and the month and the year of something that was going to happen in the future just reminded me that God is the God of history, past, present, and future. Everything is under His control and domain. Man, that is encouraging. Because we are so short-sighted, aren't we? As we live from minute to minute, become so pessimistic, so discouraged, so depressed. We need to get our eyes off the world, up on God, who is the Lord of history. Great God. Isaiah 46 says this about our God. God's talking here and He says, remember this. Remember this, my people. Remember this and be assured. Have confidence in it. Have hope in this. Put your hope in God and who He is. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind. Don't forget it. Meditate on this great truth. You transgressors. We are sinful, aren't we? We are sinful. We are finite. Well, what do we remember? What do we recall? Verse 9, remember the former things long past. Ancient history. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like Me. I'm incomparable. Verse 10, what is it so amazing about you, God? One of the things is that God declares the end from the beginning. Can you imagine that? He declares the end from the beginning. He already knows what's going to happen in the future because He wrote the script of what's going to happen in the future and everything will happen according to His plan and even in your own life, that is true. Declaring the end from the beginning from the ancient things which have not been done, saying My purpose, this is God talking, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all My good pleasure. That is awesome. That is awesome. And if you are a Christian, you are in Jesus Christ and God's perfect will has been secured on your benefit because of the heart of God. So this is a personal promise to believers. I will accomplish my good pleasure in you if you know me through the person of my dear Son and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead to this great God. Pray to Him and thank Him for who He is and also the truth He's revealed to us. Father, we do thank You for our time together for the Lord's Day. The opportunity to interact with saints. The opportunity to meet new people. Uh, the privilege we have to, to do the one another's to allow others to bear our burdens, to confess to one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. God, thank You for Scripture. It's the living Word of God. It penetrates our very heart, our conscience, our being. It is alive. It transforms. It refreshes. It satisfies. It helps us grow. It convicts. God, thank You for Your Scripture. And most of all, Lord, thank You for who You are. That You are the God of history. You declared the, the end from the beginning. The future is secure, and that's even true in our own individual lives, especially if we know You in Jesus Christ, our precious, risen Lord. It's because of Him we pray to You. We give You all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.